Today on the show, we can't help but notice your skin. It's so moist, like cream. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) This would be the ideal time for Koji to come in and start slurping his water. (laughs) I'm sure he'll do that later in the episode. Yeah, we'll get him. We'll get him on mic. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe. From Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV, my name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today on the show, we are continuing our coverage of the Sci-Fi Channel's Dune miniseries. (laughs) Hell yeah, baby. Episode two, part two. Part two, it, the second one, <laughs> we made it. <laughs> we talked about episode one. If you hadn't heard it, go listen. If you haven't watched them, go watch them. Today, we're talking about episode two. And as a spoiler warning, well, the miniseries covers the events of Dune. So spoiler warning for the first book. And of course, the uh, Denis Villeneuve adaptation, the newer movie. That's right. We're going to be making a number of comparisons to the movie today. Indeed. Also, let's get a bit of housekeeping out of the way before we jump in. A reminder that the best way to support this podcast is to become a patron on patreon.com slash gomjabar. Yeah. You get incredible perks like early access to book club episodes, extra bloopers and bonus clips every week. You also get to vote on upcoming show topics. That's fun. And of course, you get invited to the exclusive Discord server that's just for our listeners. You get to chat with us directly, and you get to know all of the amazing folks in our geeky little community. Just a bunch of fans of Dune hanging out in a Discord server. (laughs) It's very cool. (laughs) Special shout-out, as always, to our Kwisatz Haderach-level patrons, Case Aiken, Nate Hyde. Fellas, we couldn't help but notice your skin. Yeah. It's so moist. Guys. Drop that routine, y'all. It's it's like cream. <laughs> you're Tell so us ch- your secrets. Seriously. Thank you, guys. You're the best. <laughs> and thank you to all our patrons, as always. As Abu said, y'all keep our little, little podcast afloat, and we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Another great way to support the show is to check out our merch. Yeah. On gamjabarshop.com. And just a sneak peek, y'all. There may be some new merch on the way soon. Keep your ears peeled. Stay tuned. <laughs> Keep your eel- ears peeled? Yeah, Peel those ears. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> do you love these episodes where we're talking about other stuff? Or do you hate them? I mean, honestly, <laughs> I would believe either. Email us. <laughs> gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know. We accept all sorts of communication. Letters of appreciation. Episode topic suggestions. And of course, Dune memes. Yes. All of please. them. We love them. Equal enthusiasm across the board. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. That's the place, folks. 
Okay, that takes care of housekeeping. A quick reminder before we get into it that we will be covering this three-part sci-fi miniseries from 2000. We already did episode one, and we talked about the first hour and a half. Today, we're diving into episode two of the series, which is the next hour and a half, and then we'll wrap it up in the next episode with part three. Right. Now, if you'd like to watch the series, you have a couple of options. We're going to try and link some YouTube videos in the show notes for you. The last ones we linked have already been taken down, but there's always some sort of copy available on YouTube. Mm -hmm. We'll link one or two options for you down in the show notes. But the best way for you to experience the sci-fi series is to track down a DVD or Blu-ray and purchase that because it's not available for streaming anywhere at the moment, unfortunately. Right. Now, the game plan for this episode is exactly what we did for the first one. We'll begin with a brief summary, touching on some of the main plot points of the episode and some of the new additions that the miniseries adds. And then we'll jump into two things that we each loved about it and two things that didn't resonate with us or that we thought could have been done differently. And then we'll wrap up the episode by sharing our favorite scene from part two. Indeed. Now, throughout this conversation, we will, of course, talk about lore tidbits. You can't stop us, even if you want Never. to. Never. <laughs> Never. Uh, we'll compare <laughs> the miniseries to the other adaptations that exist. And again, all of this is just, we would love to keep it nice and tight and clinical. It'll never happen. This is Gomchapar. <laughs> <laughs> That's the guarantee, baby. <laughs> That's the guarantee, baby. Okay. Enough scene setting. Let's talk about this episode. But before we do, we're going to take a short break here, but stick around, folks. You're going to want to hear this discussion about part two of Frank Herbert's Dune mm. on the Sci-Fi Channel. Mm. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you had a productive, creamy, creamy break. Oh, ew. <laughs> Let's start off with an overview. Like before, there isn't a huge point in going scene by scene, word for word, character beat by character beat, because honestly, this is Dune. Most of the major moments from the second chunk of Dune are totally present and accounted for, but it picks up basically where the first episode ended. That's right. Part one ended with Paul and Jessica escaping in the ornithopter and flying into the Coriolis storm, right. and that's exactly where part two starts. And you're right. We get a lot of the major beats from the book here in part two as well. It follows it very, very closely. We get Paul and Jessica escaping in this Coriolis storm, their first meeting with the Fremen and that confrontation with Stilgar. Paul's duel with Jameis. Yeah. Followed by the funeral, followed by Paul's naming as Muad'Dib. All of that is present and accounted for. We're going to talk a bit more about Jameis and his funeral later on. Right. We also start to see the beginning of Paul and Chani's relationship, just like it is in the book. We see the consummation of the relationship, like twice. <laughs> Multiple times. Yeah. yeah, a few times. More than once. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. More power to him. Yeah. This episode also follows a plot with Irulan, which we're going to talk a lot about in a little bit. We get some hot spy shit from mm. Julie Ka, mm. I mean Irulan, and- there's a lot of political intrigue that actually isn't present in the book. We get this short little scene between Moheim and the guild agent talking about 
Arrakis and the rumors taking place there. It's all really interesting stuff. And they talk about prescient blindness. It blows yeah. my mind. So good. Very lore accurate. I, I did like that little scene. The episode then continues just as the book does with Paul and Jessica settling into their life among the Fremen, being accepted among them, and training them in the weirding way. We get a couple of training scenes as well. Jessica then undergoes her water of life ceremony. That's all very on brand. We know exactly what goes down there. And then part two of the miniseries wraps up with the spice orgy scene and some very, very alarming visions that Paul is having at this point in his life. So again, the overall structure, the plot points, the character arcs, nearly exactly as the book portrays them. Right. Although, although, hey, just like the first episode, the writer of this really did add quite a few new scenes specific to this adaptation that do a good job of expanding the universe in, in, in ways that sometimes land perfectly and sometimes land something other than perfectly. <laughs> Not yeah. as perfectly. As an example, in this incredibly epic scene, Irulan confronts her father, Shaddam IV, about the Arrakis affair. Yeah. He's like, what the fuck, Pops? I liked him. <laughs> he was cute. <laughs> How dare you? Incredible. A lot of fun. Great scene. We see a scene where the Fremen troop rests for the day on the trip to Siege Tabur, and Paul gets his first look at a pair of them titties, <laughs> which is a very crass way to say a tremendously uncomfortable long stare at Chani, yeah. who's dressing and is made uncomfortable by Paul. Paul, what are you doing? <laughs> My right. guy. Good Lord. Meanwhile, Jessica sees him staring and does not scold him. It's a very strange thing. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's, it's strange. We'll talk about it. And it's clear it. that his all-seeing visions didn't teach him some manners. <laughs> it's true. He's seen all of space and time is still a creep. Come on, Paul. <laughs> we get to see the troop riding a sandworm on the last leg of the trip to Siege to Burr, which is cool. Doesn't happen in the books. Right. We get to see Beast Raban being awful. <laughs> He's murdering refugees. He's accusing them of being Fremen spies. And just murdering them in the streets. Brutal stuff. Brutal, indeed. We see Paul and his visions of Fremen pushing him to challenge Stilgar for leadership. Setting up that conflict, I thought that was so cool. Cave of Birds being foreshadowed this early on. Yeah. I love that. And the Fremen love a good chant, dude. They'll chant anything. <laughs> I think in that vision, they were literally chanting, challenge him, challenge him. <laughs> they go to football matches all the time. They really love starting up chance. It's great. We get this incredible montage of Stilgar and Paul training in the field, battling Harkonnen troops. You know, we haven't gotten to the two-year time skip yet, but we're getting to see some of what takes Paul from being the naive dude who kills his first guy with a blade to hardened Fremen warrior. Really. Mm -hmm. We see that transformation happening. It's cool. His haircut changes. Johnny... <laughs> gives Paul a lesson on how Spice and Worm are connected, which is cool. Yeah. And they bang, naturally. Another lesson about worms, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a spicy <laughs> lesson about worms, we could say that. Yeah. Yeah. Ew. Euphemism. We also get to see, and this was 
absolutely nuts. I wrote a note this to myself cool. in all caps. We got to see the killing of the little maker, the baby sandworm, baby shy halud, to create the water of life. Yeah. Un. This was unexpected. Real. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Because again, why? And the answer, why not? It's fantastic. I really enjoyed that. And I actually think they did a great job of it. I agree. I totally agree. And actually, speaking of things we enjoy and we thought this episode did a great job with, how about we talk about the two things that we each loved about this episode? Yeah, let's do it. Leo, how about you go first? What was the first thing that you absolutely loved about this episode? My girl, Julie Cox, (laughs) a.k.a. Irulan. My God, I know that I made this point last time. I'm making it again. Who the fuck cares? It's great. Irulan gets so much time on screen in this adaptation, and I am here for it. First of all, listen, she opens the episode with her narration, and I want to point this out. I, I do appreciate that Villeneuve chose to give his adaptation more focus on the Fremen and the Fremen side of the story and their perspective as basically the indigenous tribes of Arrakis and their perspective on the outworlders who keep coming in and fucking up their deal. I appreciate that. I think that's great. And I honestly think that's something that needed to be done. That being said, canonically, Irulan is the historian who documented a ton of Dune's events. She goes on to really be the one to write these things. And you notice this because almost every single chapter in Dune starts with passages written by Irulan. So this sort of tips the hat to the structure of Dune, which I thought was very uh, well done, very neat. Yeah. Now, out of order entirely, I love that we get to see her (laughs) espionage, her skills on full display. You know, she goes to Giddy Prime, seduces Fade Rautha, asks him these like insanely leading questions. No, tell me about the blood on your hands. No, no, no. Tell me about (laughs) the murder you committed. And he's like, oh, yeah, (laughs) didn't kill him. She's like, really? He's probably still alive. Yeah, probably still alive. Wow. So interesting. So good. I love that this adaptation is giving her an agenda. I love that she's got agency. I love that she has things that she's trying to get done. All of that's awesome. And also, good Lord, Julie Cox brings the heat (laughs) in that scene. I, the whole time, was ready to confess all of my sins to her or whatever she's asking. I'm like, yeah, I saw. Yeah, he's dead. I don't know. He's not dead. What do you want me to say? I'll say anything. Yeah, (laughs) right. You cannot blame Fade for spilling the beans here. Oh, no. We all would. (laughs) Yeah. And don't think you'd be the one who would hold out. You wouldn't. Oh, no. Don't lie to yourself. (laughs) Totally. Now, the final little moment on my list is this incredible scene where she confronts Shaddam. Like, I cannot say enough good things about this. Now, on one hand, Irulan is really showing us her frustrations about being used, about her kind of station in life as this pawn that's being moved around by both her father as the emperor, but also the Bene Gesserit. We get a sense of her father-daughter relationship with Shaddam, like a real sense of what is it like to be Shaddam's daughter and the tension that's there. Yeah. That's really fascinating to think about, and we don't get that at all in Frank's first book. 
And also, my God, we get to see Irulan talk to Count Fenring. I, okay, long-time listeners, y'all know, I love Count Fenring. He's one of my top, like, five characters from the first book. And to see her be like, uh, yeah, oh, I'm sure you say that, Fenring. Like, throwing some sass at him. She doesn't trust him because he's always scheming and plotting. I loved that. Like, yeah. what so excites me about this series is that we get to see interactions from characters who don't really interact in these ways, but the interactions feel so, so right. And I, I just think are, are so very well done. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'm going to share my own thoughts on this scene a little bit later because, spoiler, this was my favorite scene of this episode. Oh, I yeah. loved it. <laughs> So good. So uh, I'll share my thoughts on it later. I will say, though, I want to just confirm that Fenring is still in your top five, even though he's wearing the goofy hat in this uh, in this episode. <sighs> yeah, I will say not. <laughs> oh, not a good <laughs> not, aesthetic. Not a great for, look. No, yeah. this guy's not worming his way into my heart. I'm not buying potential Kwisatz Haderach. I feel like the Benny Gesserit would have been like, listen, he's got plenty of potential not super cute though not the cutest <laughs> yeah i don't know no shade on the actor who played fenring i just i always pictured fenring as a as kind of a sly handsome man kind of like the the little finger actor from game of thrones totally and sort of regal in his own way as well yeah i mean he's count fenring you know so the uh yeah the goofy hat <laughs> is a tough one <laughs> uh, also i feel like that would draw a lot of attention to him i don't know I feel like he's kind of a shadow. Like, I feel like he disappears and is very unremarkable. So, yeah, you're right. There's some tension there with how I like him portrayed. But anyway, like to see him on screen, hoping, fingers crossed, all of my fingers are crossed, that we see him plenty in Villeneuve's part two. Me too. Uh, okay, so that was the first thing that I loved, my Irulan Bonanza rant. What about you? What's your first pick? So I wanted to spend a couple of minutes talking about this James funeral uh. because I was so happy to see this in the show. Yeah. A part of me really feels like the James funeral could be on the chopping block in the Danny Villeneuve adaptation in yeah. part two. But I desperately hope that it's included because this is one of my top scenes from the book. It's one of the most emotional scenes in the book. And I think the I was a friend of James ritual is just so iconic and would be so incredible to see on screen. And it really was incredible to see it in this adaptation. Yeah. I was very, very happy it was included for a couple of reasons. I mean, I, I think beyond just it being iconic and very emotional, it's important for Paul's character growth as well. This is one of the first times in Paul's life that he has to reckon with the fact that he has killed a man, right? which is a formative moment for him and in the sci-fi miniseries episode paul says quote i was a friend of james and he taught me that when you kill you pay for it end quote and i went back and i checked the book because i couldn't remember if that was exactly what he said and that is word for word what paul says in the book as well during the ritual during the funeral so that was cool to see how closely they adapted that yeah he also, of course, gives water to the dead at this moment. He sheds tears. And the water that's then reclaimed from Jameis's body 
is given to Paul because it is rightfully his as the victor in that duel. Just a big sack of Jameis juice. <laughs> Just a big Jameis juice. Wow. I cannot believe we haven't been calling it that forever. <laughs> I did chuckle at the fact that this miniseries made one small change that I thought <laughs> yeah. was kind of unnecessary, but yeah. like Stilgar walks up with the fucking Jameis man juice jugs <laughs> and like sticks it in Paul's mouth and he's like, yo, drink this. You've earned this water. <laughs> oh shit. Jameis juice jug water bottle. Water bottle. Oh my God. <laughs> Jameis juice. Jameis juice. What flavor would that be? What does Jameis taste oh, like? Oh God. Uh, <laughs> Sweat, leather, salty, leather water. <laughs> yeah, you're spot on. So that <laughs> merchandise ideas aside, I think the Paul having to drink Jameis's juice, very weird. Yeah. But either way, really well done scene. I was extremely invested. I think this scene is so important, not only for Paul's own character growth, but also because it gives us insight into Fremen culture, something we know so little about in the first half of the book. I loved that it was included in the sci-fi miniseries. I desperately hope Danny Villeneuve takes some cues from the miniseries and includes this in the movie as well in part two. Yeah. No, a hundred percent agreed. I like in the book, rereading that chapter, I cried. It's just so emotional and it's such an important moment for Paul and it's, yeah, I, I'm so glad it was there. And honestly, yeah, Denny, take notes, please. Totally. Ugh, I can't wait to see it if it happens. Yeah. Okay, Leo, item number two on what you loved about this episode. All right. This one's, again, kind of a grab bag. Uh, production <laughs> choices. Broadly. I love how you're, I love how you're always like two. 2A, 2B, 2C, 2D. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Just sneaking in a couple of small ones listen, every now and then. Listen. I love it. I love it. It's I almost didn't put things I didn't like today, and I thought that was too on the nose. Uh <laughs> yes. I think this this I would say this is production choices. Okay. These are a few smaller things, but ultimately I think there's this umbrella of they made some very strong choices, especially in this episode, that I am very much on board for. So while this won't be like a conclusive list of literally everything, I am going to do my best to just cover the big things that jumped out at me. First up, we see the weird in combat in this adaptation. And remember, until this adaptation, weird in combat was a sound gun, I guess, because David Lynch did yeah. once desert kung fu. Fuck off, David Lynch. Give us weird in combat. <laughs> and we're given it here, and it looks so cool. Like, Frank was super vague in describing exactly how it looks, but there's, like, a little description of it's you visualize being at the target place before you could conceivably move there, so it appears like you teleport. It's so vague, but I think they killed it. It looks so cool and looks exactly as mystical as we're sort of led to believe it is in the book. You know? Yeah. It was really, really well done. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> Something that was maybe less well done, but I still love it. Mwadim. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> As a little stuffed mouse. My God. It's adorable. Uh, I'm on it's board. It's basically a sock puppet. <laughs> it's so bad. 
it's hilarious, kind of kind of awful, but even though it's super janky, especially even compared to like other animatronics of not that long ago or like not that different of an era, I very much prefer this to the like you know, Star Wars prequels added PS1 era CG graphics that that just <laughs> aged so badly so quickly, you know, like if this had been like a fully animated little like CG mouse, I'm not convinced it would look better than this puppet looks. And I think this puppet is going to look charming and funny and cute in 40 years, you know? So you're saying it can't age badly if it's bad to begin with. <laughs> yeah. They plateaued how bad it looks aggressively. Like day two, it looked bad, but it looks just as bad <laughs> hundreds of days later. 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. that's that's fair. <laughs> it's a strong choice. They're like, it's a it's a cardboard cutout. Fuck you. Look at it. It's a mouse. You understand what we're doing. <laughs> and viewers are like, I guess they win. That looks great. I, I get it. Yeah. I, I get it. I loved the glow globes and the shaking of the glow globes. It's such an interesting choice. Like, I don't know for a fact that this didn't come up or like come specifically from Frank's writings or even Brian's. But I looked through the first couple of books that Frank wrote, and most of the time, glow globes are just lit or extinguished, right? And not really given any kind of gesture. Like, what are they doing when they light the glow globes or extinguish the glow globes? Giving them that little, like, shake, I think, first of all, reads really well on camera. It also works well with the Dune Encyclopedia's suggestion that they're powered by bioluminescent batteries, right? These microorganisms from ECAS. You shake them up. You shake up those little tired microorganisms <laughs> and they get to emitting photons. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Wake up, Mr. West. <laughs> Wake up, Mr. West. Yeah. <laughs> I'll also say on Glow Globes, I really appreciate in those scenes on Kaitan, it occurred to me they have Glow Globes, but they're these smooth, industrial, very regal looking ornaments versus sleeping in the sieches in the Fremen caves. They're much kind of lumpier or they look almost handcrafted and i love that sort of unspoken storytelling that like just set design giving you the idea yeah they all have this type of light but the way that they're making it on kaitan or the way they make it for kaitan is different than maybe the way they're made on arrakis yeah i loved this detail it's something i didn't notice until i looked at the script i saw your notes and I was like, no way. And yeah. I went back and skimmed through and rewatched some of the scenes you pointed out here. And you're totally right. That is some very cool world building and attention to detail that the glow globes on different planets and different cultures are designed differently. That's so cool. It's really cool. And, you know, now I, I realize now I don't even know if I noticed any on Giddy Prime. So I'll have to go back and check. But yeah. Again, it just shows an attention to detail, a dedication to craft, a dedication to storytelling on every level, right? It's not just right. about the words the characters say. It's what they wear. It's how they light their rooms. It's, you know, it's all of it, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's the creaminess of their skin. All <laughs> of it matters. Just the, it's just the creamy, creamy skin that we get to see on, <laughs> especially, man, that fade scene. She Yeah, she All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, Okay, concentrate. The spice <laughs> agony is a whole trip. That's a whole moment. And I got to say, 
Literally, though, yeah. <laughs> this is this is on my list of bold choices I agree with because if you look at what it's described as in the book, this has got to be like top two or three hardest to adapt moments in the book. And it, it's it's just such an eternal abstract process, right? Like it's an internal, yeah. sorry, internal abstract process. I think the miniseries did a solid job on this. And I know that we maybe disagree a little bit on this. Yeah. But ultimately, it, for you out in listener land, even if you don't like it, that's totally fair. I like it because it's so bold. And like, can you imagine being Saskia Reeves on set that day? Like you're given the script and they're like, okay, it's going to be five and a half minutes and there's very little talking. And uh, you are confronting all of space and time, I think. And she's like, yeah, but what am I doing? And they're like, we're not sure. That's fair. That's right. a fair question. <laughs> Good luck. Do your best. Uh, we'll all be here looking at you. And we're going to try to add some effects so that it doesn't look super stupid. And honestly, I think they failed. It looks real goofy. <laughs> mm-hmm. But We do agree on that. Yeah. But I will say I was not bored. I was not bored through that whole portion. And it's a strong choice. It's a really strong choice. I can imagine a thousand safer ways of doing that. All of them would be boring. Next up, pretty quickly, I'll say uh, the final scenes contain some incredible choices. I think showing the siege orgy at all is is already like an amazing choice. Yeah, bold. I loved the kind of trippy lights, the you know the blues and the greens. Very fun. Looked like the kind of party I might actually enjoy. And then finally, these little scenes end with Paul standing among the Fremen, his hands covered in just a comical amount of blood, raspberry so juice. So much blood. <laughs> so much. Very red. <laughs> very, very red. But then the blues and greens, right, click and switch. All the people dissolve into sand. And then he's surrounded by the dead bodies and the bright red light. It's just so iconic. It looks so bold and so fun. I just think for this whole sequence, the VFX, the direction, the acting, the sound design, everything here worked for me. I loved it. had a blast. And then finally, the last little bit that I'll throw in here as something that I love. The decision to add the creation of the water of life is incredible. I stand by this. Yeah. I'm not sure why they did it. <laughs> like, I don't know. You look at this 900-page book and you're like, yeah, but how did they drown the worm? It's like, <laughs> probably with water. I don't know what you're asking. <laughs> but it's just spot on. The lore accuracy is there. It just, it's so great. I love that top to bottom. And that's been a long-ass point on my part. So, Abu, <laughs> with all of that out of the way, what was your second pick? So, mine will be quick because you actually touched on a lot of things that I liked as well. Sure. I thought the water of life scene, really, really cool. I wasn't the biggest fan of the spice agony scene with Jessica. I thought it was a bit cheesy and over the top, but still bold, always better than boring. Right. And so I, I agree with your laundry list of things. So what what I'll say is for the second thing that I picked that I wanted to shout out about this episode is just Siege to Burt in general, because this is one bustling Siege, y'all. It is full of people. And I mentioned the same thing about Arakeen in last episode, where we see Arakeen as this bustling capital city in part one. And here in part two, we see Siege to Burt as this bustling siege full of Fremen, full of a community, kids, 
parents, everyone in between, people yeah. going to work, marketplaces. Like this is a community that's alive. It's not just about Paul and Jessica and our main five or six characters. And I liked seeing that. I love seeing that type of world building in the background where we recognize that these characters inhabit a universe that exists outside of them as well. Right. And this was actually a criticism in the last episode I had about the Danny Villeneuve adaptation as well, is that Arakeen is like lifeless in that movie. Yeah. We don't see anybody except the main characters and Jumpy Janice. Like those are the <laughs> only people we see so in Arakeen Palace. So jumpy. Calm down, Janice. <laughs> I'm, giving, I'm giving you hand signals. I'm Subtle. being discreet. <laughs> Six steps forward. She shouted, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so I think this is something that I hope that Danny Villeneuve learns from the Sci-Fi Channel series is to show us like the the world building, the the people just existing and living within these communities. Yeah, I totally agree. It really is striking to see these scenes of like Fremen kids playing and people like selling things to each other and eating food and making food and talk. It's just wonderful. It's so great. I totally agree. Yeah. And look, I, I, I'm not trying to jump the gun and pre-critique A Siege to Burr and Danny Villeneuve's film that we haven't seen yet. We're not there yet. We haven't seen part two, of course. So I'm not trying to make any comparisons here that don't exist. But purely based on how Danny chose vibes over world building for Arakeen, I have a feeling he will also choose vibes in Siege to Burr over showing us like this bustling, very active siege. I doubt we're going to see a whole lot of the average citizen of the siege in part two as well. Right. And so I, I really wanted to hand it to the miniseries for handling this really, really well and breathing some life into a world that can otherwise feel really, really small because we spend 99.9% of it with the same cast of characters and we rarely ever experience the world outside of their world view. Well, those are our two things that we each loved thought that we worked i i listed like 19 things but we'll count it as two <laughs> we are going to now talk about two things that we each disliked something that didn't quite land for us but first we're gonna take a quick break so stick around work on that creamy creamy skin <laughs> we'll be right back welcome back folks i hope you took the time to moisturize I personally am feeling creamier than ever. Let's not talk about two things each that didn't quite resonate with us in this miniseries. And so to kick it off, actually, Leo, I'd love to hand it off to you because I know you're having a hard time finding things you dislike about this perfect miniseries. I'll hand it, I'll hand it off to you first. What, what's one thing you that didn't work for you? Yeah, I struggled to find any like and part of this is also I filled in these things after you filled in yours. So I agree fully with what you say. And uh, okay. and it was a little hard to like find things other than the things that you said. Um, and it was a stretch. I really do like this miniseries. But to start off very briefly, we talked about it before. Let's talk about it again. Paul staring at changing Chani before they even remotely know each other. They've exchanged like five words. Until she literally gets uncomfortable and like covers herself is a problem. That is yeah. not okay. First of all, 
Chani and her actress hurrying to dress and the way that she acts is is just reads as uncomfortable. Yep. Again, you maybe you could make the argument that she's suddenly aware of her womanness next to this oh, beautiful man and there is some uh, no, none of that reads. I think this is just just problematic in its tempo and its timing. I'll also say reflecting on this scene and reflecting on a lot of the sort of censorship that happens in episode 2. It struck me how much of an unbalance there is in the number of boobs on the screen. <laughs> yep. And notably, how few there are in the fucking book. Yeah. There is a lot of sex and a lot of sexiness and a lot of naked women added to this miniseries, which are never really highlighted or talked about in Frank's book. And I gotta ask, like, okay, yeah, maybe they're making it more appealing to straight young men because Dune is already not appealing enough to straight young... Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Just, like, you clearly respect the story. You clearly understand the source material. You understand it's kind of a heady story where, yeah, there's murders and there's blood and everything, but it's about politics and it's about society. It's about religion and manipulation. You don't need to sweeten the deal with boobs. You just don't. I also can't help but think, again, without saying anything about plot, Dune Heretics and Dune Chapter House are notably more sexual <laughs> as books. There's quite a bit of sex and things in those books. Yeah, exactly. To be clear, we're not saying the Dune saga as a whole is unsexy. It, it right, ramps right. up pretty aggressively. <laughs> yeah, it does. But it the first Dune book certainly is very unsexy. Right. If we were to take this ratio of the amount of sex that's in the book to the amount that we get in the adaptation. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and apply this to a Dune Heretics adaptation, it would have to be on Pornhub. Like, it would just, it would have Direct to be. Direct to Pornhub. Yeah. It's insane. So, anyway, that's my first thing. It's just you don't really need to add sex or boobs to Dune to make it an appealing story. The first book doesn't have it, and it's a masterpiece. Although, no shame to any of the people who showed body parts on camera. Y'all are gorgeous. This movie is full of very attractive people. Uh, just putting yeah. it out there. Anyway, so that's it. That's my first thing. What about you? What's, uh, what's your first pick for things that don't work? So let me hit you with this, Leo. Sure. Why, oh, why? Must the Baron rhyme? Frankly, I consider it a serious crime. Oh, shit. What a silly thing for the fearsome Baron to do. Mm. It makes me want to bid adieu huh. and never watch the show again. I, I couldn't keep that going. Snaps. Look, snaps. It was snaps. incredibly... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate you snapping for that horrible rhyme that I just forcefully inserted into the middle of this podcast when we're having a normal conversation. The coffee shop went wild with snaps. <laughs> I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is the Baron rhyming is just so distracting and such a turnoff for me. I know we already talked about the issues we have with the Baron's portrayal in the last episode, so I'll try not to rehash too much and I'll try not to spend too much time on this. But I really do think you're spot on what you said last episode about David Lynch 
taking the Baron in a certain direction, this like madman cackling, quirky Baron. Yeah. Really stuck for a long time. And I think the sci-fi channel really just followed suit with what David Lynch did. And that's how they adapted it. That's clearly the Baron we get on screen here. And for me, and I think for you as well, it just doesn't work for us. Like it it isn't the Baron that I read in the book. It isn't this fearsome, cold, calculating man that I know exists in the story, particularly in the first half of the book when we know so little about his plan. Right. Later in the book, the way he handles Fade's attempts at murdering him, which we haven't quite seen in the miniseries yet. We're not there yet. But we get more examples of just how shrewd and cunning and brilliant the Baron is. And none of that is on display in either the 1984 film or in this miniseries in these first two episodes. Right. I think, like we said in the last episode, the Baron we get in the Denny Villeneuve adaptation is truly the closest Baron we've gotten to the one in the book. I completely agree. I think you fundamentally miss the point of the Baron if you make him this idiotic, rhyming, gesturing like, oh, I'm the Baron. Like, it's just, it's just wrong. And it seems conspicuously wrong (laughs) in such a generally... uh, careful and meticulous adaptation it is interesting i'll have to you know i'm i'm pushing for us to do a fourth episode on this just like talking about the whole series and i have this behind the scenes book and i'm curious to read about you know i i know that they talked about this is more shakespeare than it is like star trek or star wars but still uh to get this character so wrong is so interesting yeah I would love to know what was going on in the writer's room and in the director's head with the Baron. It's an interesting take. And again, it's a take on it. And our opinions are just that it it doesn't match the Baron we know in the book. But maybe this is your favorite version of the Baron. And that's totally valid, too. Yeah, I think a lot of people like this was the first time they ever saw Dune. And they probably do kind of resonate with this. No shame to you, honestly. It totally. Totally. Your your experience is is valid. It's just it's just tough, especially if you start with the books and you come to know the Baron as he's written in the first, you know, as he's written in Frank's books. It's it's pretty it's pretty brutal to see him act this way. <laughs> totally. Okay, Leo, what was item number two on the list of things that didn't work for you? Well, you know, I always feel so restricted by the number two, so I gave. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. Yeah. Here's 19 <laughs> things. Uh, no, uh, two two quick objections, and these are very okay. very brief. The first thing, no Gurney Halleck. Now, I can't honestly remember if and how he's reunited with them in the third episode, but it was so strange for them to spot Gurney Halleck among the smugglers, and for that that they, them to have that moment of Stilgar going, "Oh, let's go say hi to him." And Paul going, no, 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 it's not. Like, so strange to get that scene. Now, granted, this is because that scene where Gurney reunites with Paul and there's the three Sardaukar among the ten, you know, smugglers, that happens after the time jump and we're not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. But why, then why give us this scene? It felt very strange. It felt very like a tease and that I just <laughs> didn't appreciate. Yeah. More generally, I'll say for as accurate as 
a lot of this adaptation feels to me, you know, and as meticulous as they've seemed to have been with so much of the world building and little details. In this adaptation, I have zero sense of how dangerous the desert is. <laughs> <laughs> like multiple scenes have characters just hanging out in the sun. The episode literally starts with Jessica. I guess the, the ornithopter crashed after the Coriolis storm. We don't even see that. They just, she's asleep in the sand and wakes up and Paul's like sitting reading Yui's note. She's in palace clothes, sleeping <laughs> in the sand. Or she, even if she's unconscious, Paul, drag her into the shadows. What are you doing? You will die. You are both dead. Yeah. <laughs> With that shitty water discipline. Come on. It's baffling to me. And the desert being nearly impossible to survive is kind of central to a few of the key elements of this story. I just personally wish they spent more time on it, especially in an adaptation that adds as many scenes as it does. I really, I trust that they could have figured out a way to do that correctly, and they, and they just didn't. So, yeah, not a, not a, not a huge problem. Neither of those are huge problems, but things that kind of bothered me. That's me. What is your second choice? So, my second choice is just Stilgar. Yeah. Just almost everything about Stilgar rubs me the wrong way. And this actually goes beyond what I said in the last episode about the issues I had with Stilgar being cast as a white dude. I've already said my piece there. I just think even beyond that, he was completely miscast. Like, maybe it's just a disconnect between the Stilgar I've always had in my head and Javier Bardem as the Stilgar we have now in the Denny Villeneuve movie. But I just have such a hard time believing that <laughs> that this like old balding dude is the smartest and most fearsome warrior in Siege <laughs> to Burr who's risen to the ranks of Nabe and has earned his people's respect through combat and trials and Harkonnen and blood on his hands. I don't see that. I'm also I don't divorced. Like, it, it's, I just have a really tough time. Maybe it's something about the costume and makeup and hair design. I don't know. I always got the sense that Stilgar was this, like, regal, self-assured, confident yeah. leader of the Fremen people, right? Like, the kind of person who walks into the room and sucks the oxygen out of the room because all eyes dart to him. Yeah. Like, becomes the focus of anywhere he walks into. Like, tall, not even necessarily handsome, just rugged. I, what I'm doing is not describing the actor who played Stilgar in this miniseries. I, I don't know how to say his name, but he's a German actor named Uwe Oceanskett. Oceanekt. Oceanekt? Oceanekt, yeah. I just think this was not the role for him. <laughs> Stilgar was not who he was meant to play, and it certainly wasn't who I envisioned in the books. And I brought up Javier Bardem, but really, like, Javier Bardem truly embodies the Stilgar that I've always had in my mind. This man who instantly commands respect in a room and who carries himself with confidence. That to me is Javier Bardem and not, not Yui, unfortunately. The, the actor just simply did not work for me at all here. I mean, it is canonical. Like, when Jessica is observing him for the first time, 
she notices all the things you are looking for, right? She's like, here is a man who leads. Here's a man who commands respect and everyone defers to him. And he's very comfortable with power. And she's straight up attracted to him. <laughs> she's like, yeah, for real. This, oh, he's a nabe, you say? I don't even know what that means. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sold. Smash. Sorry, what are we doing? <laughs> Smash, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. No one no one has ever passed on Stilgar, let's be honest. Yeah, and regardless of if he's handsome or not, that's his charisma. It's his attraction. He is attractive, period. It's canonical. Yeah. Okay, Leo. Well, those were things that didn't necessarily work for us that we disliked about this episode, but we hate ending an episode on a downer. So how about we share our favorite scene from this episode? You only got to pick one, so no cheating on this one. <laughs> what was your favorite scene from part two? Well, I decided that these three or four scenes really <laughs> spoke to me. <laughs> on a sp no, I chose one. I chose one. I played by the rules. I will say, although there were other scenes that I really liked, uh -huh, I will say uh -huh. <laughs> that... Chani's speech by the underground water basin was really powerful. The scene is interesting. It's written for this miniseries. It's unique to this miniseries. It's mashing up a few moments from the book to make something new. So it's not wholly original, but we see in a way that I don't remember from the book. We see Chani mourning her father's death, mourning Dr. Kynes' death. We by the way, Dr. Kynes exploding was so funny to me. It was so good. I loved that, actually. It was so good. And the way they cut him off for the explosion. Yeah. I, I want that to be a meme. Anyway, continuing with this heartfelt <laughs> reminiscence. Love that you snuck in another scene. But Listen, go ahead. shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I will be me. Okay. That she gives water to the dead. That we get the the Fremen, the Chani perspective on Dr. Kynes' death, I honestly think that was missing from Frank's book. And for as important a character as Chani is, seeing how deeply she believes in Liet's plan was so moving. And I was re-watching this, and I fucking read Dune. <laughs> like, I know, I know what happens. And yet, I found myself getting emotional at this. Her breaking down as she's kind of describing this dream for a green Arrakis and carrying on this vision of her father, it was just, it was very powerful in a way that I was not anticipating. And I just want to applaud the, uh, again, the actress who plays Chani, but also I think the decision to make that a scene, give that its own space and give Chani a moment to really show the sorrow of losing a parent. Because again, in the book, I think she she's just quiet and leaves for a bit as Paul right. meets Hurrah and his new children he owns. <laughs> so anyway, that's my that's my sort of pick. I think it was just so powerful. Yeah. No, absolutely. Chani's grief is completely off page in the book, which I think is injustice to such a central character right. in this story. So I couldn't agree more. I loved the fact that this miniseries brought that front and center, that relationship between Chani and her father and how much his death truly did affect her. Yeah. Well, that's my, that's my pick for favorite scene. Uh, favorite two scenes, really. 
<laughs> what's your favorite scene from this episode? So, Kynes getting blown up aside, the other scene that I truly loved in this, we've already talked about it at the top of the episode, but I'll touch on some things again here. Irulan confronting her father. Yes. Mm -hmm. We, I suspect, will continue to gush about Irulan next episode as well. She's truly been done justice in this miniseries. Denny Villeneuve, take note. Yeah. I loved every time we cut back to the palace to see what sneaky shit she was up to. <laughs> yeah. This version of Irulan, like you said earlier, you used the word agency, and I love that. This version of Irulan has been given so much more agency and is, frankly, actually a real three-dimensional character outside of the little chapter excerpts that we get at the start of every chapter. She only really exists as a character literally at the end of the book and literally only as a pawn for Paul to gain the throne. Yeah. Like, I think I think Frank clearly had a vision for her being more significant, but you're right. Like, in her actual presence in the book, by the end of the book, the reader's like, who the fuck is Irula? <laughs> Ira who? <laughs> <laughs> and even years after reading it, I'm like, yeah, Irulan sucks. And it was only after I started this podcast and we really talked about her and explored all of the stuff that's on page just it's not obvious and that's tough it's a really tough look right and we have to we talked about it last episode but we have to commend the creators of this show for reading in between the lines like that and really understanding Irulan as a character and giving her the three-dimensionality that she lacked in the book but that is there if you look for it that is there between the lines. And you mentioned it earlier, but I loved that this scene where she confronts her father gives her motivations that actually run antithesis to the emperor and shows us that she clearly regularly butts heads with not only her dad, but Fenring as well. It's this antagonistic relationship that isn't apparent in the books, but that sets her up in a very interesting role to be quite the power player on the imperial stage. Oh, totally. And in imperial politics. It's a super interesting take on, like I said, like an otherwise like pretty much non-existent character in the book. Or at least a very flat one-dimensional character. It's a brilliant scene. And hats off to the writer and director and the creative team behind this show. They they just get Irulan, you know? They're clearly as big Irulan fans as we are. Goofy fucking hats off to them. Yeah. Goofy, <laughs> no. stupid ass, ugly ass hats. Fully off. Take them off. Take those hats. Get rid of you, those hats. You know I'm talking about the hats in the next episode. Piece of I shit have to. hat. Shit hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Somebody find Fenring a fedora. Goddamn. <laughs> Malay. <laughs> Malay. Well, folks, let's wrap up. We've got one more episode to go before we what? wrap up this little mini series. Again, I'm going to push for four. Yeah, maybe four. four. Yeah, okay. yeah. Cool. The maybe. pushing works. Well, well. <laughs> All I have to do is push uh, Abu during recording, uh, although yeah. you'll just edit it out. <laughs> Look, I'll, I'll cave quickly. Like, like that hat under any amount of gravity. <laughs> As a reminder, we want to hear your thoughts. You can email us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com or, hey, if you message us on Discord, we may even include your message in the next episode. 
Tell us what you think about the hats. <laughs> Give us your hot takes on the hats. Hot hat takes. <laughs> Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. We've got original merchandise that mm-hmm. celebrates Frank's incredible universe, t-shirts, bobby pins, or not bobby pins, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> t-shirts, microwaves, semi-trucks. <laughs> we have <laughs> clogs, cigarettes. <laughs> a, a large hadron collider, a large... all of it. <laughs> we have the planet Mars for sale. <laughs> NFTs crafted of your girlfriend's feet. Oh my, oh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs>